1741, the most most famous sermon ever preached in America, most historically famous sermon ever preached on this soil was delivered by a preacher named Jonathan Edwards. And matter of fact, they can trace the first great awakening, the Puritan movement, to this event. Uh, that this, this sermon was so influential in his community and in his church and in the life of other preachers who were reading his work. that This was historic in the movement of the Great Awakening in the early American history. And the, the title of this sermon from Mr. Edwards was this. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, now that seems like something that the Westboro Baptist Church would be proclaiming. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I like Mr. Edwards, and, and he was a great expositor, a great preacher. For his text in that sermon, he selected Deuteronomy 32, 35, which says, speaking of the enemies of Israel, their foot shall slip in due time, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. And he drew the parallel between the enemies of Israel who at any moment would fall into calamity. And his parallel was that the sinner hangs in the same condition. That it, all sinners are, are at any moment to be thrown to the judgment and, and wrath that befalls them because of God's anger towards their sin. Within his sermon, you will find quotes such as this. He said that the bow of God's wrath is bent and his arrow is made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and it strains the bow. And it's nothing except the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation that keeps the arrow from one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Mr. Edwards had some strong coffee that day. (laughs) Now, Randy is a bow hunter. You shoot a recurve, correct? You shoot compound, okay. Uh, my dad gave me a compound, a, a bare white tail from probably the 1970s, and I think it was set up at, my dad was a linebacker in college football, so he had it set at like, you know, uh, 175 pounds. No, it was really about 80 pounds. But, but back then, you didn't have the, the, the release, you see? And so for me to hold this bow, and, and here I am uh, learning how to target practice, and if I can get my arm to quit shaking... Then I can aim it, because if it's 80 pounds, then you're holding 70, because it was only a a small percentage let off back then. Now they have great let offs. But I get the same imagery from Mr. Edwards that the wrath of God's bow is bent, waiting at any moment to fall upon sinners. And the only reason is because his pleasure prevents that from happening at this point. But here's what is shocking to me about Mr. Edwards. In his whole sermon, which is fairly long, you can find it on the internet. You can buy it printed in a booklet. There are zero mentions of the cross. There are zero mentions of Calvary. There are zero mentions of faith. 
No mentions of the peace with God that comes through Christ. No mentions of the atonement, the atoning work of Jesus. But I imagine that when Mr. Edwards got to heaven, he realized something. That God was not angry. And that he was worshiping not an angry God. Now follow with me if you will. You see, anger is an emotion. You and I get angry. Whenever I go to the Keurig in the morning and I'm out of my French roast. My anger. Or if there's no creamer. Or if there's no bacon. Things in our life bring about an emotion. can bring about anger. Somebody cuts you off. Or any of these things happen that cause an emotion to arise up. So anger is an emotion. And the Bible never says that God is defined by emotion. God is not defined by emotion. No, my friend, the good news of the gospel is that if God acted from his emotion, you and I would be instantly destroyed. If God acted from his emotion, you and I would be instantly destroyed. So that emotion of anger is present, but he does not act on emotion. Though God could destroy sinners completely with one thought, he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because our God is a patient God. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient. Not wanting anyone to perish. But willing that everyone come to repentance. So while it's true that God displays anger, God displays wrath, these are part of the elements that stem from his hot and holy love. Can somebody bear witness today? Let me tell you something. February is going to celebrate love. And people are going to do all kind of things. And they're going to buy big old teddy bears and, and boxes of chocolates and, and, and flowers and, and all these things to celebrate love. But let me tell you something. God has a hot and holy love that puts us all to shame. <laughs> His anger against the wicked in the Old Testament was because of his hot and holy love for Israel. He was protecting the people that he loves and therefore angry at the ones against his people. It is not the justice and wrath that spawns God's love. It's not God's nature of wrathfulness or anger that causes him to intervene. It is his love that causes his justice to come forth. I'll give you an example. If you see your child running out into the street while playing in the yard 
and, and there's a traffic coming through and there's danger that is imminent. You're going to run and you're going to jerk that child by the back of their hair and not care if they are, 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 are offended or feelings are hurt. Why? Because your intervention, your wrath is actually because of your love. You see? When a, a, a dog approaches from the neighbor's yard and tries to get in between you and your child, your intervention and anger towards that dog is because of your love for something else. God's anger spawns from love. As 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And did you know that God gives us his own description of himself? Did you know that God defines himself in scripture? I mean, this is good news for us today. Because of 1 John 4, 8, and let me tell you, brother, I'm going to get to Romans, okay? I've got to get a foundation built up. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And 1 Corinthians 13 defines love for us. We all know this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 of what love is. But did you know that God is defining himself in this passage? 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Does not dishonor others. Is not self-seeking. That's why Jesus says I did not come to be served but to serve. It is not easily angered. <laughs> it keeps no records of wrong. Can I tell you that God is not in the business of wrong keeping. But wrong erasing. Oh man that's good. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. That's God, folks. That's God. God is love. The anger which the psalmists in the Old Testament have recorded is the earthly perception of God's holy love. And language doesn't do us a lot of justice in defining God's nature. Can someone describe for me the smell of coffee? Now, we rebuke you in Jesus' name. But, you know, uh, take a regular coffee. How do you describe that? Something with words that's perceived with the nose. That's difficult. How do you describe the color Green to a blind person. You ever thought about that? Something that we have no natural perception of receiving, how is it described? So language comes short when trying to describe God's nature. And all we can go from is what God has given us himself. And the def definition that he has given us. You see, Bill Nye and Ken Ham can talk about evolution because they observe the evidence. But how do we talk about God? It must be from what God has revealed himself. And the greatest observation, the greatest evidence of God's nature is the cross. 
<laughs> Let me tell you something, friends. The Old Testament is wonderful. Matter of fact, it's the majority of the Bible. The, New Te- the Old Testament is the majority of the Bible. I encourage you to get in it every day. Get in the Psalms. Get in the Proverbs. And if you're really challenging and up for an adventure, get in Deuteronomy. But don't get stuck in the foundation. Are you with me? The Old Testament is the foundation so that Christ can be built upon. Let me tell you something. When I go into my house, I sit in the comfy living room. Let me tell you why. Because in the living room, I can rest. Here's what I don't do. I don't go crawling through the foundation to lay down and take a nap. Now, I go crawling through the foundation if I need to inspect something. If I need to check things out, make sure my pipes aren't frozen. There's a purpose for the foundation, but it's not a rest. Man, that's not even in my notes. That's good. This is why I'm so shocked that Mr. Edwards spent such a great amount of time dealing with God's anger and wrath. Because listen, folks, hell is not the great display of God's wrath. Hell is not the great display of God's character. The tribulation will not be the great display of God's character. (laughs) Those are small actions in comparison with the wrath that was poured out at the cross. Mm. And the Bible says that God sent his son not because of his anger, but because of his love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. (laughs) If God was indeed simply angry at sinners, well, we should all be in hell right now, my friends. But the other part of the story is his love trumps his anger. Can anybody help me today? You see, like I said this past Sunday, the Old Testament is a veiled revelation of God. It's not the complete revelation. If the Old Testament was complete, Christ would not have to come. But Christ came to fulfill what the law and the prophets were trying to speak about. And Christ was the full revelation of his nature. It was the foundation to prepare the way for Christ so that Christ could rest on a foundation. That man had no ability to save himself. Let me tell you, they tried for four years thousand years to save themselves for four thousand years they tried to get right with God here's what the old testament says they tried and tried to get right with God they could never do it the old testament's not about getting right with God it's about showing man that he can't so therefore I propose a title for my sermon tonight and I've got 20 minutes to do the rest of it My sermon tonight is saints in the hands of a happy God. (laughs) That's the gospel, folks. Saints in the hands of a happy God. Turn to Romans chapter 5. That's the longest introduction I've ever given. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Let's stand for our traditional Wednesday night custom. 
I love traditions, especially ones that honor God. Amen? Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May God bless the reading of his word this evening. Mr. Edwards' text for the most famous sermon in America said that their foot shall slide in due time. Pointing of the wrath which awaits every sinner. But I think there was a greater awaiting for the magnificence of God that has to do with Romans 5, 6. That when we were still without strength in due time... Christ died for the ungodly. You see, I've been reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on Romans, and he says that Romans 5, 6 is one of the greatest verses in the New Testament. And he says he believes it's greater than John 3, 16. And I've never realized this before, because John 3, 16 indeed gives us a characteristic of God's nature as love. If you remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but what did he give him up Two, what did he give them up for? And Romans 5, 6 unpackages this. He gave his son in due time so that Christ would die. You see, folks, it is not the baby in the manger that God gave. It is not the life of a magnificent prophet that God gave. It is not the workers and, and the, the majority of the gospels that save us. Let me tell you what saves us in the gospel. The last few chapters where he died. <laughs> so God gave Jesus not just to come but to die in due time. Man, when we were helpless... A helper came. When we were without strength, as the scripture says, we were without ability, we were without strength. At that time, Christ died for the ungodly. The people of God at this time in history had in their possession the Old Testament law for 1,400 years. And this is where preachers get in trouble when they try to preach the Old Testament law as incentive to bring someone to faith. Let me tell you, friends, the Old Testament points us to our knees, but the New Testament points us to Christ. You see, the Old Testament shows our failures, but the New Testament shows his provision. That's why they must be combined, the bad news with the good news. And this is the difficulty. This is why it says approved workmen are not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. (laughs) Knowing what applied then and what applies now. Are you with me? When, when there is no rightly dividing the word, we get into error. When the word is not rightly divided, we fall into legalism. You see, the Old Testament shows we're without strength. 
But then Christ died for us. That's where I think Mr. Edwards' error in drawing people to faith was what he was using God's wrath as a motivator instead of God's goodness. The New Testament says, do you not know that it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance? It is God's mercy that draws us to faith, God's kindness. At this time in history, in due time, the philosophies of this world had waxed to fullness, but the wisdom of this world had not been sufficient in yet making man right with God. You see, at this time, in due time, those Socrates and Aristotle and Plato had at that time answered many questions about man's existence. They had answered many questions about logic and truth and beauty. They could not answer the dilemma within the soul of every man. I don't know how many of you watched the evolution debate last night. Pastor Dave and Scott. Amen. Y'all watched? Praise the Lord. Okay, last night was probably the biggest debate in evolution our country has ever seen between Bill Nye the Science Guy and Ken Ham, founder of Creator in Genesis. And uh, it was on the internet. You could pull it up. Um, One of the greatest moments was at the end, they had a question and answer session, and someone asked Bill Nye, how does the naturalistic viewpoint, how does evolution account for consciousness of matter? This is a great question. How does evolution account for the consciousness of matter? And Bill Nye's response was, I don't know. But Ken Ham's response was, well, friend, I have a book for that. I do know that we're created in the image of God. That consciousness comes from the image of God. So it's amazing that after 6,000 years of man's science, man cannot answer the basic question that Descartes tried to answer. Why do we think? Why does molecules think? How does a molecule love? Because if we're just molecules, then it's just carbon buying roses for carbon on Valentine's Day. (laughs) Hey, baby, my carbon loves you. (laughs) What about some carbon dating? Oh, that was good. Y'all get that carbon dating? (laughs) I love it. They could not answer the question, how can we be made right with God? (laughs) But at due time, Christ came. Once the philosophies of man had waxed to the point where man realized he could not answer the greatest questions of his existence. Matter of fact, I'm doing a research project right now on C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, who was a professor at Oxford University, and what pointed him to faith was the fact that he could not answer his greatest questions. Atheism cannot answer the greatest question that I had. (laughs) And he started studying philosophy, and he started studying truth and the existence of, of value, and he said, man, if some philosophies have value, then there must be a value that intrinsically exists in the universe. Where did this value come from? And an atheist, one of the smartest minds ever, became a Christian because he realized atheism could not answer the greatest questions of his life. 
When the Bible says we were without strength, it means we were without ability. We were helpless. We had no means to help ourselves. I think there's three things at least that man had no ability to do when Christ came on the scene. Number one, man had no ability to understand God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man understands not the things of God. That you and I just like we can't tell a blind man what green looks like. Natural man cannot perceive the things of the spirit because we're natural. Until the Holy Spirit influences our heart. Until Christ came on the scene and gave the revelation of what the spiritual was. And that the spiritual exists to reconcile all things back to himself. That God was drawing the world back to himself in Christ. Man did not understand God's intent before Christ came on the scene. Secondly, man had no ability to seek God. I was without strength. I was helpless. Romans 3.11 says there's no one who seeks God. Isaiah 53.6 says we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us having turned to his own way. We all were astray before Christ intervened. This was man's path. And lastly, man had no heart that could guide him to God. There's so many religious systems that exist today that try to make you believe that you will find God by seeking God. My friends, it won't work. God seeks you. God sought you. God bought you. Our job is to rest in the work he did. Are you with me? By resting in the finished work of Christ, we are illuminated to the character of God. It was Christ who came to us. It was Christ who came to me and rescued us in the midst of our sin. He did not wait for you to clean yourself up before you came to him. I've met many people that were wanting to schedule a baptism service, and they were believers, they were Christians, but what they said, they said, Pastor, I've got to get some things right before I got baptized. Uh, My friend, listen, Jesus didn't wait for you to get right before he got up on the cross. He came while you were in your sinful condition, and if you're waiting to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus, it's never going to happen. Come to Jesus and let him do the cleaning. Amen. And Christ came before we ever called for him. Matter of fact, Christ was already declared to come before Adam had ever been created. Christ was already declared to come before Adam existed. As the scripture says in Revelation 13, 8, that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That from the existence of the world, the knowledge of the lamb being slain was decreed by God. God declares the end from the beginning. God had already decreed that his son would come and die the moment he breathed the universe into existence. Matter of fact, John 1.1 says it was the word of God that was God, which was the Logos, which was Christ, that spoke the word into which he would come and die for it himself. Christ came at the appointed time. 1 Peter 1.20 says he was chosen before the creation of the world, but it was revealed in these times for your sake. Let me tell you something. God's decree of election to send his son in the world to redeem the world 
was always his plan A. Jesus was never God's plan B. Jesus was always plan A. It was always plan A that his character would be revealed through Calvary. It was always plan A that sinful man, God knew they would fall. And he was going to redeem them. Sometimes our mistakes trouble us. But my friend, they have not troubled God. He came because of them. Secondly, that God demonstrated the character of his nature, which is love. As verse, I'm going to, seven seven's pretty explanatory. Who would die for a righteous man? Very rarely will that happen, yet perhaps for a good man would someone even dare to die. You know, if Christ died for good people, then that kind of makes sense. Okay, Christ is going to die for the good ones and redeem the good ones to be a bride forever. That makes sense, but that's not how it happened. Christ didn't die for the good ones. And I don't know if that's good news for me and you, (laughs) that we were kind of the, maybe the leftovers. I mean, we're here because we were the bad ones. We're part of the bad flock. (laughs) And let me tell you, there was a good flock, and it was in a garden, and it didn't last very long. So we're part of the bad flock. God doesn't just say how much he loves us. He showed us. So in the New Testament, or I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, where they were trying to perceive his nature and his relationship with Israel, they had a small perception, but now in the New Testament, they have a full, unlimited perception. That's like uh, somebody, my dad was telling somebody that when he sees uh, a high definition, that's when they clean the TV with Windex. (laughs) That's pretty good. Man, I always thought the TV was brown, but then mom cleaned it one day. Wow, look at that. It was an, an unveiling of what was there. It was not a new thing. It was always there. The root of the knowledge of salvation comes not because of self, but because of the knowledge of God. That seeing Christ is the revelation to salvation. If we have seen the work of Christ, and we have believed it, that can only happen through the Holy Spirit. Because the natural man knoweth not the things of God. And here's the danger some people get into. Is they think they're looking for an assurance of salvation by looking at self. This can't happen. I'm going to explain this. This whole passage here, Romans 5, uh, 1 through 8. At the beginning of uh, 5, he's talking about, therefore, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have knowledge of our reconciliation. And because of that knowledge, verse 5, we have hope. And then verse 6 is an explanation of the previous. He says, for when we were without strength, Christ died for us. So this whole passage is to demonstrate the assurance of our salvation. The assurance of hope comes from the knowledge that Christ died from the ungodly. And the Holy Spirit has to confirm that. And that is love displayed on the cross. So if we follow the whole path starting at 5 verse 1 down to now, what we see is 
That our knowledge of salvation comes from the cross, not from self. God does not tell us to look at our own heart to see if we're saved. He tells us to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus to know if you're saved. Because there, once we look at him, we'll say, yes, he died for the ungodly. Am I ungodly? Christ died for me. Am I a sinner? Christ died for me. Hmm. People so often want to question their salvation by looking at their works. Am I doing the right thing? Am I praying enough? Am I believing enough? My friend, that's the oldest trick in the book. The enemy from the beginning wanted Adam and Eve to look at what they didn't have instead of what they did have. You see, they had a relationship with God, but the devil says, well, but you don't have this. Mm. You see, in the beginning, there was a relationship that existed, but the devil says you need a little more. Jim, you need to pray a little more. You're not doing enough. Enoch, you need to read your Bible a little more. You're not doing enough. Well, I can really know I'm saved if I'll do more. My friends will never outrun the works what the devil wants us to do is look in the mirror but God wants us to look at the cross see the finished work was it not our own failures that brought us to Christ in the first place if our own failures brought us to Christ to begin with why would our own failures pull us away works makes salvation Never works. Was it not the knowledge of our transgression that caused us to flee into the loving arms of a Savior? If therefore the knowledge of sin in our life pushed us to Christ, then why would it be that the knowledge of sin pushes us away? That's works-based salvation. Well, (laughs) I came to Jesus because I'm dirty. I still feel dirty, so I must not be saved. Let me tell you something, folks. If you still feel dirty, maybe you've got a little bit of spirit goggles on. And now you can see the dirt. Huh? Who knows they need to be cleaned? The one that sees they're dirty. You've got a bunch of dirty people that are just walking around not knowing there's a cleansing flood. But my friend, every time you see the dirt, step into the flood. I would say the Christian who is aware of their failures has the greater blessing of their need of clinging to Christ. The cross was God's anger towards sin, but his love towards us. And God, uh, my friends, all this happened because of the joy And the pleasure which exudes from his being to create a people for himself to exist forever. And once we see the magnificent grace of God, that will draw us into a life of victory. Free from guilt and condemnation. So, I hope that we can say that we are saints in the hands of a happy God. Who sent his own son to die in our place. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your word and your spirit. Thank you for your goodness and love and majesty, which pushes sinful creatures like us into your arms to know the love of a magnificent Savior. Help us live in this reality today that our sins have been washed away, that righteousness can now come forth because you gave it to us. And we can be righteous because you made us righteous. Thank you for this knowledge in Jesus Christ. We ask in his precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.